It's time to talk about Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. And now, here's Ira. My guest is a man who has been an integral part of Las Vegas entertainment for decades. He recently performed at the Nevada Room and will no doubt be back for more appearances. He's comedy legend Pete Barbuti, or Barbuti, depending on which pronunciation you like, and we'll ask Pete about his favorite pronunciation. For Pete's upcoming performances at the Nevada Room, check the entertainment calendar at VegasNevadaRooms.com. Hey, Pete, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ira. Good to talk to you again. Same here. You have been part of Las Vegas forever, and I want to get into that, but given your unique style of comedy and storytelling, did you have any influences when you were first coming up? Uh, yeah, I did. I had a group on the road, a musical group, and we did comedy, of course. That was the era when uh, we were straight music and vocal group, and then uh, we found out that you know managers would say, do you do comedy? And if we said, no, we don't do that. And then they'd say, do you play rock and roll? That was the beginning. This is in the 50s. And and then we'd say, no, we don't play rock and roll. And then, and so jobs were getting less and less. And so uh, we didn't want to go to rock and roll because it was, uh, you know, a couple steps down in terms of music. So we uh, we started to, in the beginning, we stole some routines from other groups we saw and changed them a little bit and th- things like that. And then I found that uh, as the years went on, I had... Uh, you know, some aptitude at creating comedy bits. So then we started putting our own little comedy group together and got pretty good at it. And then when the last group broke up in 1962, or the fall of 61, I guess it was, uh, you know, I had went out on my own and uh, I, that was a whole traumatic thing that I had to, you know, restart just doing the comedy. But uh, uh, when we were working in Chicago, everybody coming in the old the older comics would come in and say uh, uh you know you got you got some talent you should be doing more comedy and so forth and then they said uh, you remind us of Shecky Green and I had never heard of Shecky Green nor did the rest of the world you know he was a Vegas act sure and uh, uh and so I said uh, no I don't know and they said well if you ever go to Vegas well we did uh, you know a couple of years later I came out here with a group and uh, I saw Shecky's name on the marquee. I think the first time I saw him was in the Tropicana Lounge. And uh, it was 1960. And I went to see Shecky, and uh, it was the most bizarre thing I ever saw in my life. He had no beginning. He had no. He didn't have any structure at all. He had no ending. He had no middle part. He, he was just the funniest man I'd ever seen in my life, and I laughed until I was ill. And uh, so I think he was a, he was a big influence on me. He's still going strong today and still as funny as ever. Yeah, we have breakfast together every Monday at uh, one of the hotels, and he's 95 now, and he's 100% sharp mentally. He hasn't forgotten one iota or one word or one person that he ever met in his life. You know, he uses a walker. He's a little unsteady at times, but he's uh, mentally he's he's a champ. Yes, and he also, he's amazing to me because I can't remember yesterday, and yet, as you say, he remembers everything. So, well, he remember. You know, I talked to him about things. You know, I'll say, uh, uh, Shecky, did you ever work that club in Omaha? 
uh, he'd say, yeah, Angelo's club. And then he, and then he'd say to me, Angelo's wife's name was so-and-so. And he had a son named this guy. And, uh, he said, my bookie in Omaha was, uh, you know, one of the guys who ended up owning a chain of hotels out here. And, you know, and he, I mean, he remembers his, the address of where his bookie was. And I said, there was a doctor I knew there or, or an attorney. And I mentioned his name. He says, yeah, I knew him. And I knew, I knew his, his wife's name and, and boy, he's, I mean, it's just, just staggering to that kind of memory. Pete, why did you decide to move to Las Vegas? Well, you know, I came up with, it was a weird thing. We were working in the club in Chicago and the guy said, I have an inn. I can get you into Vegas. And, uh, and here was his inn. He knew the guy. In fact, I'm, I can even remember the names, Kay and Lou Frazen, who, who had a gas station in front of the Frontier Hotel. And, and he said, he knows the bar manager. His name was Mackie Bergman. And, uh, think I can get you in there and, and so forth. So we could get us in, but we had to pay Mackie Bergman like $5 a week. And we had to pay his janitor $3 a week. And it was, you know, in the old days, it was everybody had their hand out here. And so we got into the frontier, the new frontier. And it was, they were lucky it was the hot lounge in time. In, in in time in, in in the town in those days, it was called the Cloud Night Lounge, and so uh, we went in there and we rehearsed the day early. We set up and rehearsed, and all the the bartender was setting up. Of course, it's twenty four hours, so everything was open even in the afternoon, and and everybody was all excited about it. And they said you'd be working with Frances Faye, and uh, I knew of her, but you know didn't know her of course. And uh, Frances Faye came in. Uh, the casino guys were even saying to us, boy, you guys are killers, man. You got a great group. You sound good. The vocals are great in your comedy. Oh, we're, they were all excited about us. And Frances Faye came in and she had like a six or eight piece band. And she said, uh, get all those instruments and that band that's up there, meaning us, get them pushed to the back and get my musician set up front in front. So I said to her, well, can we move some of the stuff for our part of it, for our set? And she said, no, you may not touch anything on the stage. So we were so far back that they couldn't turn the mics up because it was feeding back. And the, the lights just barely reached us. So it was like music. <laughs> the audience couldn't see it. It was like music. And we're, and we're getting complaints. And somebody called. Bill Miller was the entertainment director. He used to own a, a place right across the GW Bridge in New York there, the Riviera. And uh, they, they called Bill Miller, who was on his first vacation. He was in Florida. And uh, he hadn't had a vacation in years, and 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 he didn't want to come back. And they said you got to come back and fire this group. And and so Bill Miller left his vacation early and came back. And the night he came in was near the end, and and Frances Fay was just terrible to us. And the crowning blow, she was in a wheelchair at the time because she was suing one of the casinos for falling or something. And uh, she was wheeling by, and she knew who I was, of course, because she saw her every night. And she grabbed me by the wrist, and without making any eye contact, she said, uh, uh, my piano keys are dirty. Get some soda water to clean <laughs> And that was the crowning blow. So I went up on stage, and I, and I told the audience, I said, this is the worst job we've ever worked. You're the worst people we've ever had. This is the worst hotel I've ever been in, and we're going to do one show. And, and she had, out in front of the stage, to make matters worse, she had a nine-foot Steinway grand piano extending out into the audience. They built a special stage for it. So we were even farther back. 
So I got on top of the piano, stood on a piano, <laughs> and I started putting down everybody, and, and uh, the audience was laughing like hell. And uh, so then I, I got the trombone player up on the piano, and then I got the guitar player and finally said to the audience, you want the drummer up here? And they were screaming, yeah, get the drummer up here. <laughs> so uh, we did this one show, and little did I know, Bill Miller was in the audience. You know, he came in to fire us. And Bill <laughs> came up to the leader and said, what's the problem? You guys are crazy. So anyway, Francis Bay never worked there again, and we stayed seven months at the Frontier Hotel. But I tell you, what really got to me, you know, in the 50s, when you were on the road, you have to remember there were no fast food places, and there were no 24-hour uh, restaurants on the Right, road. or diners or any of that stuff. Yeah. yeah. So if you wanted to eat, if you're working in, uh, you know, Lorraine, Ohio, if you wanted to eat after the job, which is when every of the groups did in those days, you had to go to the bus station, you know, and the food was terrible. Then you'd go home, <laughs> and that was the middle of our day. You know, it's 3 o'clock in the morning, and we're still hyped from working the job. So, we, you know, there was no TV. Everybody signed off. They played the national anthem. There'd be a test pattern if you had TV. And the radio, the only station we could get was WWDA in Wheeling, West Virginia, was all country. And and it was just, you know, it was terrible on the road. And, of course, by the time we got up, the bank was closed, the post office was closed, the cleaners was closed. So uh, we were like a, a, a cult. We just didn't fit in. And, and, and then we got to Vegas. And man, I mean, everything was open. Twenty-four hours a day, you could go and get something. You could you could order breakfast at four in the afternoon, and the chef didn't come out of the kitchen with a cleaver after you. You know, <laughs> it was a, a, you know an epiphany. So uh, I called my wife and the kids. Uh, we had three kids at the time back in Vegas, and and she, well, she was back in Pennsylvania. So I called her and I said, uh, "Get on the train and get out here. I found paradise." You know, everything was open, and, and if you had to cash a check, you just went to the the cashier's cage. Right. You know, in those days, and in fact, the uh, people forget the cashier's cage used to keep airline stock tickets there, and if like the players would lose all their money, and you know they say I have no way home or something, you go to the cage. The pit boss would say, "Take care of this guy," and they'd get a ticket, and they'd call United Airlines and say, "I'm writing out a ticket for Joe Blow on the on your." 12 o'clock departure tomorrow for Lorraine, Ohio or whatever. And they'd write it up by hand and give the guy a free ticket home. You know, so the cashier's cage was like a bank and the post office and it was like everything. It's an amazing period of time in Las Vegas. And clearly you stayed here. I mean, you traveled and obviously you've been a, a big success on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. But do you think that your live performances is what really gave you the solid basis for your career versus the appearances on the Tonight Show, yeah, there's no, there's no question. Yeah, there's no question because you can't uh, when you're going on TV, you know, like on the Tonight Show, especially if you were going on on a Friday, you know, on a Friday night when more people watch because they didn't have to get up early Saturday. Uh, you're talking about 25 million people seeing you at once, so you can't you can't go out and just ad lib something. You know, you have to make sure. And then you have a time limit too. They say you you have six minutes or five minutes, and you know. And then you go to the panel. And of course, when you go to the panel, you know, they they you they'd ask what you're going to talk about, and they get at least three different subjects. You say, well, I I just had a broken leg, and so and so. They say, okay, what else? Well, I got stopped by a highway patrolman in Cleveland. Okay, and what else? You know, yeah. And then they'd write that down for Carson, and he would look at it and 
see which one you know he thought fit the 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 ambiance of what was going on. But uh, yeah, and and Carson and I had a strange relationship. I did the show when it was in New York, Ira. You know, when uh, Skitch Henderson was the band leader, and, and uh, I did something. I forget what it was, but Mel Torme was on before me, and Carson loved Mel Torme. You know, he was a brilliant singer and, and very hip, and he was a drummer, as was Carson. And so uh, they had sort of a camaraderie there. And uh, Mel went to the panel, the panel, and they told me, now, this is your first time, so you don't go to the panel. Just go out there and do your thing and walk off. I said, okay, I understand. And so I did my thing, and Carson came and got me personally and took me to the panel. And he did two whole segments with me. And everybody was saying, he's never done this, man. You're made. You, you got it made now. And then halfway through one of the stories he was telling, Mel Torme started to laugh. And Carson assumed he was laughing at him. And Mel, who, who didn't mean anything by it, said, I'm sorry, John. I didn't mean to interrupt it, but I can't stop laughing at that thing Pete did. <laughs> Carson turned off right then and there. And they closed that segment. Somebody came and asked me to leave. And uh, for 14 years, I was banned from the show. And the producer of The Tonight Show, Peter LaSalle, was not only a dear friend, but he was my biggest fan in the world. He used to do the Arthur Godfrey show, which, you know, I did hundreds of times. And so we were very tight. And Peter would call me periodically and say, mention your name to Carson. And uh, he said, no way, he kicked over a chair. So, I mean, it was a... And then, uh, so anytime there was a guest host, you know, Peter said, uh, you're our first call. So I did it, you know, dozens of times. And then uh, one day they called me and I always ask who's on because if you have all starlets on, you know, or people who are talking, then I do something more musical. And if you had too many singers on, I do just straight stand up. Right. So, that makes sense. You know, to balance the show because sure. the show is good. Everybody's good. And uh, I asked who's on and they, they always told me. And then I said, who's hosting? And the guy said, Johnny. I said, oh, oh, no. I'm on the list. I don't do it. <laughs> and the guy said, oh, I'm so sorry. Then he called back like 10 minutes later and he said, I met you. Your name to Johnny. And he said, great. That so is amazing. Yeah. And I never apologized. And he didn't. And we developed a really, really tight relationship. Although nobody was close to Johnny. You know, I mean, nobody went out at dinner with him or anything because he was a real private guy. But uh, I would barge into his private makeup room when he was getting made up and tell him the latest joke, and he'd tell me the latest joke, and then when he'd walk in, it was sacrosanct. He was flanked by uh, Peter LaSalle, Fred DeCordova, and a security guard when he walked in, and everybody was told don't approach him there before the show. And Carson would leave his group and come over to me and start talking to me, and everybody was saying, what the hell, is, what's going on? What are you doing? <laughs> anyway, I, yeah, I was, I was, I mean, I was very, very pushy, on the show at times, he'd say, we'll be right back. we got to go to this commercial. And I would grab his arm and say, no, wait, let me finish this. You know, <laughs> and, and, I, and, and then once I, I said to him, I, I hope, you know, I hope I'm not being too pushy. He said, you know what? Let me tell you something. The people riding the commuter train from Connecticut to New York, the stockbrokers, they'll say, did you see the, they'll see, did you see the Carson show? They never called it the Tonight Show. You know, I say, Johnny, did you see Johnny last night? They'd say, yeah, there was this crazy guy on then. He was driving Johnny crazy. So <laughs> said, they won't even remember your name, he says, but they'll, they'll, they'll say the show is incredibly good. And he says, and I'm the producer, so I'm making the money. <laughs> so whatever you want to do, you agree. And, 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 you know, people don't know this, but every comic who did the show, 
unless you're like Bill Cosby or George Carlin, they would call you in to the room, whoever, whomever was your producer, and they'd say, what are you going to do? And, and, you know, you'd say, I'm going to do a joke about the airline. And they'd say, well, do it. And you had to do the routine cold in an office to one person behind the desk. It was kind of demeaning, but they insisted on it. Then they'd ask what, what you want to talk about on the panel. Well, I got to the point where when I went in, they say, what are you going to do? And I'd always say, I'm going to do the rabbit joke. And they'd say, you've never done a rabbit joke. You keep telling us that. I said, never mind. I'm going to do the rabbit joke. And I wouldn't do anything else. <laughs> and then they'd say, uh, how much time are you going to do? I'd say, uh, six minutes. They'd say, you always run over. Don't do six minutes. I'd say, I'm going to do six minutes. And they'd say, go ahead. So I really had carte blanche. The relationship was so good. Yeah, that is amazing because very, very few people would be able to not have to deal with the producers and give them a whole laundry list yeah, of what they're going to yeah, talk about. So the only time I got bleeped, I got bleeped twice. Once, uh, there was a tenor player on the band, Richie Camuca, who was uh, uh, Latino. In fact, he was born and raised in Mexico and m- moved as, a, I guess, a youngster to L.A. He was a great sax player. And uh, they said... W- w- I was sitting on the panel and they said, uh, they asked me a question or something. I said, you know, Richie, the, uh, the uh, Mexican sax player. And they bleeped Mexican. And I said, why would you do yeah, that? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I said, that's what you call a guy from Mexico. And they say, no, you can't. You can't do that. And then the second time, uh, I think Bob Newhart was hosting. And we had a good thing going, too. We always argued with each other on the panel. And so we came back after commercial break and... Uh, and Bob said, Jesus said, the guys in the band really love you. I said, yeah, and that's a killer band. I said, thanks, Doc. And then Bob said, uh, excuse me, you don't get to thank Doc. I'm the host. I thank Doc. You're just a guest. And I said, no, I thank Doc before the show. He said, well, I thanked him in the dressing room. <laughs> and I said, yeah, well, I thanked Doc in the parking lot. I said, I said, yeah. I said, he was under a Datsun trying to smoke the shock absorbers. <laughs> and, and, and they bleeped that. And I said, why? And, and he said, because Datsun is, is a car company we don't advertise there. Oh, said, man. It was, it was totally financial. They didn't care what they did. <laughs> didn't hurt the bottom line. <laughs> did, did your many appearances, and you did quite a few on The Tonight Show, did you see a, an impact on the audience when you were appearing after your appearances on The yeah. Tonight Show? Yeah. Sure, yeah. They, they, in fact, there were a couple jokes I told. One was a summer over the rainbow joke. And uh, it I think every musician from New York and L.A. called me within the next two days to still laughing about the joke. It was a very inside <laughs> musician joke. And then I did the pig joke. And uh, I got stopped at airports. No matter where I went for a month after I told that joke, people would stop and say, you know, I'm the CEO of General Motors and I used your joke at our last meeting. Or a preacher would come up to me and say, I used your joke at services last Sunday or Another guy would come up to me and say, I used your joke at the wedding. You know, it was uh, it just spread all over the world. That's amazing. Did you also see the impact in terms of your increasing uh, numbers in, in audiences after your appearance on The Tonight Show or after your many appearances on The Tonight Show? Did you see that? Yes. Yeah, sometimes, sometimes. It all depends on where you're working. And, you know, right. I mean, if you're working with a, in a place with a snowstorm, it's you know, all those things affect everything or national news or something. Yeah. I, I was on, you know, Ed McMahon was the same thing. Ed McMahon hated me. He hated me, man. And I finally, you know, finally got to him. I kept referring to him when I was doing the show. And, and finally Ed came around and he became a big fan. 
And then Ed McMahon uh, uh, had a group of people in from, uh, where the hell was it? Oh, from Lubbock, Texas. Mm-hmm. He had a big group of people, maybe 30 people. And Ed said, these are friends of mine. Uh, w- would you go out and say hello? Because they're excited that you're on the show. Would you go out and say hello to them before the show? So I went out and I said hello. And then during the show, I did a joke about Lubbock, Texas, you know, sort of a, you know, accusing it of being like a hick town or something. And they all laughed. They were so delighted that I mentioned their town. And it was about two or three months later, I get a call from a guy who owns a club in Lubbock. He wants to book me and offers me a ton of money. And uh, I said, well, yeah, okay. And it was for two nights, I think. And uh, so uh, they sent me a first class ticket and I flew into Lubbock. I had it connected like eight times or something, you know. And I flew into Lubbock, and the guy picked me up in a limousine. And then we were halfway to the to the hotel, and he put the partition down, and he looked back, and he said, "I don't want to know if you'll do a TV interview." And and this was the afternoon of the show, and I thought to myself, "Geez, if they haven't sold the tickets already, yet, you know, I don't know if it's going to help." And then I said, "Well, what kind of a show is it?" He said, it's the 6 o'clock news. I said, man, Sinatra doesn't get on the 6 o'clock news. <laughs> so I said, yeah, I'll do it. Well, what I didn't know is that the night after I did The Tonight Show, some little old lady wrote into the local newspaper saying there was some smart Alec on the, you know, on TV putting down Lubbock, and, and I think we should boycott or something. And then the next day, somebody wrote in and said, that lady's nuts. He's just a comic doing a joke. And, and somebody else wrote it. And this got to be a big thing in Lubbock. People were writing in about my appearance months ago on The Tonight Show, and it kept getting more and more. So I got there, and I'm sitting in the green room. And then the host and hostess of the 6 o'clock booth said, we'll be right back with the uh, a guy who light whose best view of Lubbock is in his rearview mirror. And I said, oh man! I never, I had no idea what they were talking about. So they really sandbagged me, but I tap danced my way around it. Anyway, I go to work that night. There's a line around the block. It's it's like uh, we don't care what you say about us, just so you you know spell the name right. The old publicity. That exactly. You know what the most shocking thing about that story, Pete, is that they had a limousine in Lubbock. <laughs> well, c- coming in in the limousine, the only other thing the guy said to me, he said, uh, Buddy Holly's buried here. <laughs> and I didn't know what the proper response was. <laughs> but I said, that, geez, that's too bad, or I'm bad. <laughs> I hope he's dead. <laughs> that's funny. I mean, I could, I could do probably hours with you, Pete. We only have a half hour, but I'll have, also have you come back if you'd like, and we can even do another segment because you, you just have so many great stories. And you, you mentioned Johnny Carson. Steve Allen was another person that whose show you appeared oh, on. Steve, you know, Steve was sort of my discoverer. I had, uh, you know, this goes back. I was working in Seattle and uh, during the World's Fair and the guy who was uh, my new manager was from Spokane, which sounds strange. I mean, Spokane's in the middle of nowhere. And this guy said, do we have a chance uh to make a TV show, there's a, a couple of guys who were opening a bank. It was Lincoln Savings and Loan in Spokane. And they were fans when I worked in Spokane. They used to come in the club every night. And, uh, you know, we, you know, movers and shakers. And, and so they said they want you to do a TV special for the opening of their new bank. And I said, okay, that makes sense. What does it pay? He said, it doesn't pay anything, but we get a copy of the tape. And you'll have to write the music. 
you know, for the, for the band, you'll have to get a band, a small band, and write the music, and you'll have to do some sketches, some comedy sketches, and you'll have to do the... I, I had to do everything, like, you know, everything. Because the TV station up there had very little experience doing a live show. So it was difficult. Anyway, we did the show, and it came out pretty good. And uh, so he took the copy of the old, you know, the two-inch wide videotape, weighed about 70 pounds for a box of that tape, and... And he took it down to the Steve Allen people, and he said, uh, my name is John Powell from Spokane, and I have this comic I'd like you to see. Well, but to them, that was like, you know, they had the greatest comics in the world on that show, and they weren't impressed with this guy at all. So they start, the two writers started doing jokes about him. You know, they started to call him the sponge, and they were doing jokes about him. And uh, finally, after, he was there every night with the tape, standing in the back of the audience with this, tape, this box of tape. So finally, after they got bored with him hanging around, uh, they got one of the guys who was a page, Jerry Goldstein. He's now a manager in L.A., if, he's, if Jerry's still alive. And they said, Jerry, go out and tell him you're the producer. Put on some horn room glasses and get a cigar and go out and get rid of this guy. So Jerry went out and said, well, we just don't have the time for this. And this guy, John Powell, said, They're just he's just looking at like 10 minutes of this, and then I'll be out of your life. So Jerry took him up to the control booth and they put the tape on and, and Jerry was interested in it. So he called uh, Milt Hoffman, the producer, and he watched it. Then they called Steve Allen and they watched the whole thing and called me the next day. You got to come down and do the show. So, and Steve and I connected because he was a piano player as was I, you know, a musician. And so we connected and did the same kind of humor. And uh, it was a, uh, it was a great relationship. In fact, he wrote the liner notes for my first album. He was very good to me. And I remember that of all the different iterations of shows he did, the one near the Hollywood Ranch Market was the best. It was Westinghouse Broadcasting. And I remember yeah. attending in the audience, and I had a sign that said commercial uh, as an abbreviated thing, because that's what he used to show the camera when they'd go to right. commercial. And he yeah. spotted me, and I ended up getting a salami from him. So yeah. I can't complain. You know, he was, we were doing the show one night. Ella Fitzgerald was on, and she sang one of his songs. This could be the start of something big. And Ella Fitzgerald was a genius. She turned that song inside out, upside down. She dissected it. She did everything that was ever done. And Steve actually was right, teared up over it. He was, I mean, he's so proud. And he was, I mean, he was so thrilled. And, and there was somebody sitting in the first row who didn't applaud. The rest of the audience was screaming and yelling. And this guy didn't applaud. And Steve was the kind of guy, he was a real, real analytical type guy. He had to know the reason for everything in life. You know, he used to carry a tape recorder with him all the time. And if he saw something, he'd say, why do, why do 56 Chevy's exhaust system, you know, put out more than 49 Ford or whatever it is, he would make a note of it and check it out. And he saw this guy and he said to me, I'm going to find out why this guy didn't applaud. How could anybody not know that what they just saw was special? And Steve got about 10 feet away and then he moved over to another guy and interviewed him. And then he gave him a salami. <laughs> and he came back and he was he was sweating. I said, "What's wrong?" He said, "My God!" I went down there and the guy had two artificial hands. I was like, oh, oh, you know, we'd have been off the air. Oh man! <laughs> I got to ask you one question before I let you go, and then if you sure. if, if I'd love it if you'd come back and we'll do another segment down the road. If you weren't in show business, what would you be doing? I, you know, I don't know. I went to a technical art school and I enjoyed uh, woodworking, you know, cabinet making. I enjoyed that. So I, I, you know, I may have done that, 
if if you know if I didn't meet with good people, my my band teacher in high school was a brilliant man and a a great great human being, and he, and he was real good. And I went to school with a, a piano player named Charlie Coleman. Later, ended up working with uh, Sarah Vaughan, who was way above his pay grade, and and he they got me interested in music really seriously. So it was like, uh, you know, when I was in high school, I, I was teaching accordion at a at a place at a town 15 miles. I had to go by bus because I couldn't drive it. And, and and I was, you know, playing with every band I could, playing with the Philharmonic, and I was a percussionist, playing with the Philharmonic and playing with the university band. And, you know, I was just like constantly everything, you know, along with playing Polish weddings and everything, you know. Well, I think you made the right decision, clearly, for, for those of us who enjoy your well, work I by being tell. in. <laughs> <I will tell>. <laughs> <laughs> and I and I, I alluded to it earlier. I know everybody says peep our beauty, but originally it was peep our booty. Yeah, well, that, that's the Italian pronunciation. Right. You know, my father's father, grandpa, whom I remember dearly, uh, that was the pronunciation, bar booty. But then, you know... Uh, he insisted on us being American once he got over here and the kids are all born over here. He insisted that nobody speak Italian in front of the kids, you know, and nobody uh, and the grandkids and the great grandkids and no, and remember your name is Barbeauty now. It's American. So excellent. Yeah, both ways. Yeah. Well, that's a great way to leave it. My guest has been comedy legend Pete Barbeauty for Pete's upcoming performances at the Nevada Room. Check the entertainment calendar at VegasNevadaRooms.com. Pete, thanks for being on the show. Ira, my pleasure. It's good to talk to you again, buddy. Same here. See you next time. You've been listening to Talk About Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. Help me.